California has established itself as a national lead on the clean energy front, but a new bill hopes to take it to the next level. You're welcome. Rest of world. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Well, maybe it is. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on KSO. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up, among other things, uh, some bad news for those forgotten men and women in the working class who Trump suckered into voting for him back in 2016. Some bad news for coal baron Don Blankenship and maybe for Democratic U.S. Senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin. And, of course, Desi Doyen with our latest Green News report a little bit later so you know there will be some bad news there. <laughs> but also maybe, hopefully, hang on for some good news. Actually, yes, we have some good news, both in that report and, yes, here in California, that I want to get straight to today because I could really use some good news, some good, some positive, and I think very encouraging news today uh, for a, a happy change of pace. On Wednesday evening, California Senate passed SB 100, a bill mandating that utilities serving the state move to 100% carbon-free energy by 2045. Not renewable energy, but carbon-free energy. After its adoption in the state assembly the day before, the bill will now move to the desk of Governor Jerry Brown. If he signs the bill into law, as many expect that he will, but we don't know for sure, it will become one of the most aggressive such bills in the nation, matching only Hawaii's carbon-free by 2045 commitment. That, according to Ars Technica's Megan Guess. But due to the size of California's economy, which, if taken as its own country, would be the fifth largest economy in the world, uh, this move, again, if it's approved by Governor Brown, is seen as a very big deal, not just in the country, but potentially for the world. 
The bill specifies that any energy used in the state, whether it comes from either inside or outside the state, cannot contribute to additional greenhouse gas emissions from that state. The stipulation preemptively closes a potential loophole in which California could acquire cheaper energy from polluting plants in border states. Under this bill, they cannot, or at least they have to stop doing so, I suppose, by 2045, as I understand it. The bill also ratchets up California's previous carbon-free energy plan, such that the state will now have to move to 60% carbon-free energy by 2030, rather than the 50% goal by 2030 that was in place previously. The bill has been on the table for months as lawmakers reviewed costs and feasibility studies. According to the Los Angeles Times, however, support for the bill gained momentum in recent weeks as officials emphasized that California would essentially lead the nation and arguably even the world in response to climate change. The argument comes as the Trump administration has abdicated leadership on environmental issues, renouncing the Paris Agreement and offering a clean power plan replacement. Uh, That's the Obama clean power plan that is now to be replaced by Donald Trump's not-so-clean power plan. Um, And uh, that would do, of course, little to curb carbon dioxide emissions. So... A lot of folks are looking to California right now, where um, even our former Governor Schwarzenegger has uh, pressed the state legislature to pass this bill. Desi Doyen in our Green News report today, coming up in a bit, also argues that this is a very big deal for a number of reasons. But since it's always good to get a second opinion on such things and uh, whether meeting this goal is even possible or feasible, or as some Republicans argued in opposition, will it drive up the cost of electricity suddenly? To uh, get a second opinion on that is our old friend Vox.com's great energy wonk, David Roberts. He writes about politics, climate, and energy, and the confluence thereof over at Vox.com after spending uh, years over at Grist.org. David Roberts, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Glad to be here. All right, so before we discuss whether this is uh, feasible or not and what the pitfalls may or may not be, SB 100 uh, originally called for 100% renewable energy by 2045, but it has switched to carbon-free energy by 2045 uh, during the course of the uh, the bill's evolution. What's what's the difference between the two, and why, to your knowledge, was that change made? Uh, well, the change <coughs> was made quite... <coughs> quite a while ago, I think. Um, the idea is uh, lots of people in the sustainable energy world are worried that once you get past 60% renewables, get up to 70, get up to 80, getting that last 20% is incredibly difficult if renewables are all you have to work with. The, I- the idea is renewables you know, are variable. They come and go. Mm-hmm. So you have to <clears throat> have something on the system that compensates for that with you, flexibility. You mean, you, mean, you mean they come and go during the day? It's when there's sun the weather, and so right. right. Yeah, that's, okay. that's what variable means. Basically, you can't turn them on and off. They mm-hmm. come on and off, you know, with the weather. Right. So you have to, you have to accommodate them rather than, uh, you know, turning them on and off. And, and the way that's been done in California and every other place in the world, really, that's substantially uh, implemented renewables has been with natural gas. Mm-hmm. Like natural gas turns out to be a great 
tool for balancing <laughs> renewables. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to get to zero uh, carbon, mm-hmm. natural gas is off the table unless you capture and bury the carbon, which is ridiculously expensive and nobody is going to do. So if you have a ton of renewables and no natural gas to balance them out with, the worry is you need other things to balance them out with. And whether that could be nuclear power, it could be fossil fuels with carbon capture, and it could be, uh, notably, it could be hydro, big hydro. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the reason that they went renewables up to 60 and then just zero carbon from 60 to 100 is just for flexibility. It's mm. to allow for those other options if they turn out to be needed. It yeah. doesn't by any means exclude renewables, and mm-hmm. there's plenty of people who think that renewables are going to get way higher than 60. Like, mm-hmm. there are plenty of people who think we'll never need those options, but I think allowing for them uh, broaden the coalition of people behind this bill. Isn't hydro, by the way, you say big hydro, it, isn't that renewable? Well, it's zero carbon. Uh-huh. Um, it does. It does. I think environmental damage uh, in other ways. Mm. I mean, uh, it, it, <laughs> there are lots of very big and very very old controversies around, <laughs> around big hydro that mm-hmm. I'm not super briefed on. But I think uh, it, it is far from harmless let's put it that way i gotcha and of course it's i guess limited during droughts as well or it can be yeah and uh, it is a big problem in california yeah. if you're depending on water for your for yep. your power uh it's a big deal in california but but when we say carbon free it could allow things like natural gas to be con- to continue to be used uh so long as somehow emissions were captured basically or that's right okay. if you if you capture the carbon dioxide that comes out of the plant and bury it deep in the ground, mm-hmm. then you are technically carbon neutral and you will be allowed under this bill. The question is, is there ever going to be a point when attaching a giant second facility onto your power plant that is purely parasitic <laughs> to your profits and your power is ever going to be competitive with solar and wind, which are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper every time we turn around. And, you know, I, I don't it. think so. But yeah. but but they wanted, to, they wanted to leave it open, basically. You know, like whatever. Sure. I, I think the philosophy is who knows, they might invent something new that's zero carbon. We don't want to dictate now what people are going to use in 2040. We'll just say it can't have carbon. I got it. Well, we, and we should note, or I did note, that California is not the first state to commit to this, uh, this goal 100% uh, carbon-free power by 2045. Uh, Hawaii did it last year, but as, I believe Hawaii yeah. is all renewables, which is oh, is which it? is which is different. Yeah, and much more ambitious. Yeah, Hawaii is in a very unique situation. It's, it's not connected to the sort of uh, to the to the U.S. grid, you know, mm-hmm. the continental grid. So it's it's got its own issues. But but in terms of, I mean, if you put together the size of the economy. The, the nearness of the targets and the ambition, I think this is as big as anyone's gone. Like, this is, I, I think this is as big as it gets. The, uh, for California? Uh, for the world. Yeah. I don't think there's another, I don't think there's another economy in the world that is comparably large and carbon intensive that has anything close to comparably ambitious goals. There are, you know, there are some small European countries that have very ambitious goals, but they don't, you know, they're like, their economies are like the size of San Francisco. You know, California is really big. 
And that's one of the things that actually struck me about this when I heard about it. This seems like a huge deal. And if this was, uh, you know, it feels like if this was uh, done by uh, Great Britain or, or Germany or something like that, that we'd all be talking about it. Maybe we will once it's actually signed. But um, so you, you would agree with Desi Doyen that this is as big a deal as uh, as, as she describes it to be uh, and a big deal uh, for the world as far as taking a leadership position uh, when it comes to climate change. Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. This is a, uh, a, a very big deal in, in, any, in any interpretation, although it is also important on the flip side to acknowledge that it's not some big uh, leap. It's not some big transformation. It is another step along a pathway that California has been walking very deliberately <clears throat> for for over 15 years now. So in a sense, I think that might be almost why there hasn't been a bigger reaction, because at this point, people are, are so accustomed to hearing California is doing another wildly ambitious thing on climate that it's, you know, they've sort of like become inured to it. So, mm -hmm. you know, it was a big deal when they first passed their renewable portfolio system in 2002, way back in 2002. And ever since then, every few years, basically, they've ramped it up, ramped up the ambition. And all this is, <clears throat> I mean, the people who say this isn't a big deal, one of their arguments is it's, it's pretty likely that California is going to get somewhere close to these targets anyway, regardless, even mm -hmm. without legislation, just based on current trends. So in a sense, California has gotten, its policy has gotten more and more ambitious, but its policy is always running a little bit behind of reality. You know what I mean? And, and, and some people That's a good look thing. at that and say, yeah. oh, some people look at that and say, oh, it's not ambitious enough. But I think that misses the point is, A, when you put a policy in like this, it, it cements a new baseline. And B, it just is a signal to markets, to innovators, to new companies, that they are are safe making long-term investments in these things. And so they'll probably beat these targets too, just like they've been. I mean, the reason, one of the reasons this is happening is most utilities in California are closing in on their 2030 targets already, and it's 2018. Well, they're close, they were closing in on the, uh, the 50 percent target uh, for 2030. And so that's why we've now right. ratchet are we if yep. this is signed, we'll, we'll ratchet it up to 60 percent. Looking at and, this and one reason also that, yeah. that this is a, a big deal, one, one final reason it's yeah. not just the long-term target, because you know climate policy, you know, you've been following this. Climate policy is full of very ambitious <laughs> targets very far away, mm -hmm. you know, with, with that some other politician is going to have to deal with. But right. they didn't do that. They they put the 2045 target in place, but they also bumped up near-term targets. So this is a real, it's, it's real. It's really going to accelerate things. Now, uh, Governor Brown has uh, yet to sign the bill, as I mentioned. Uh, some news reports indicate he may be withholding his signature in order to gain leverage for some other pending legislation. Uh, including a, uh, a contentious bill to create a regional western electric grid. Uh, right now, I guess uh, California's grid is contained just within California, but there's some talk about uh, joining with other western states to expand the grid, and that has major green groups sort of split. Now, David Roberts, I know you wrote 
uh, about a 3,000 or so word article on this recently. Uh, and I know this because I read it. So, uh, I, And I don't know if this is possible, but are you able to sort of summarize what the general fight is uh, over that bill in, in terms that laymen can understand, uh, even though I appreciate it's a really, really wonky debate? What, what's the, what's yeah, that debate? I will, I, I will accept this, this challenge. Yes. <laughs> it is. Um, yes. Uh, right now, uh, California is administered, its grid and its market, its electricity market, is administered by an organization called CAISO. It's mm-hmm. the ISO in California mm-hmm. that just administers California's grid. And the ISO and what, is... And, and an ISO is an organization that, that monitors energy markets and, and regulates... Mm-hmm. Uh, they make the rules for the market. Basically. Okay. They, 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 they more or less make the rules for the grid. Okay. And the idea, what's on the table is... Expand instead of just a California-specific ISO, there would be a larger regional ISO that would administer a market that includes um, a bunch of Western states. Mm-hmm. It's not clear who all would join, but the idea is you want a bigger regional market, mm-hmm. and the advantages of that are are I think pretty clear and intuitive to people. Like the wider of an area you have, the more different kinds of energy you have to draw from, the more you can share energy. So. California frequently, like during the midday when all the solar is producing, mm-hmm. has excessive energy, has more energy than it can use. And so if it was if it was more integrated into a wider regional grid, the idea is you could just share that clean energy across the western grid and it would and you'd have more competition. You drive coal plants out of out of the West because of coal plants do terrible when there are markets. Because right now we have to, when we when we uh, produce all of the solar that we do produce during the day, we have to sort of stop the generation uh, that and and, and right. we could it's called, curta- it's called curtailment, right? And there is and there is some curtailment going on. I should say there is kind of a limited Western market set up. It's not worth getting into the details, but the idea is this would be a more formal, mm-hmm. big organization run by an ISO. Uh, uh, just not California's ISO. So mm-hmm. the advantages are, are pretty clear and obvious, and, and that's why most mainstream green groups ultimately support this, and that's why Governor Brown supports this, is because it's going to um, make power cheaper, probably, <laughs> and, and and generally make the West uh, lower carbon, probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what people think. Right. On the other side, the naysayers basically say, look, California is in a different world policy-wise, than, than anywhere else in the U.S., but mm-hmm. especially these other Western states. And so all that's going to happen is if we surrender power, if we surrender the authority over our own grid mm-hmm. to this wider ISO, which has to balance the interests of all these different states, it's inevitably going to weaken our policy. It's inevitably going to weaken our ability to be as ambitious as we want to be. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, a wider <coughs> um, regional ISO would be set up by and administered by FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and and Trump is busy packing FERC mm-hmm. with Trumpies. Right. <laughs> and, so, and so basically, I think even the people who oppose regionalization in the short term recognize that some regional coordination is absolutely a good thing. Like they all, everyone supports the broad idea of broader regional integration. The worry is just maybe we shouldn't do this 
right now in this political environment, yeah. given given how little we know about how it might turn out, you know, like what, like once you give up control over Kaiso and it's this regional ISO, California is going to have no more control over that than any of the other states. So they can't really, you know, they can, they can make a bunch yeah. of conditions like we won't join unless you promise this, that, and the other. That's what the bill that's up in the legislature right now is. It's basically like we will join this regional organization if they agree to this, 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 and this. But as opponents keep pointing out, once you sign on to that, once the regional ISO is created, that's it. California has no more authority over it, so it can't enforce any of those conditions. They're just, you know, there's no legal force to any of those conditions. So you're just throwing California at the mercy of other Western states, I think, is the the worry. And is this something that uh, Jerry Brown uh, favors? Not not, uh, throwing us to the mercy Uh, of other states, but uh, favors expanding the, the grid? He intensely favors it. He intensely favors regionalization, and to the point that that's the reason he's threatening to veto SB 100, is he says, I won't sign this unless you pass this regionalization bill and send it to me also. That's the power play he's trying to make. Because, uh, you know, historical fact, the, the SB 100 was up, before the legislature last year, too, and it failed because it was connected to the regionalization bill. Mm-hmm. And the regionalization bill just got too, too complicated and too contentious, and it brought SB 100 down with it. So now Kevin DeLeon, the California senator who has sponsored SB 100, has very carefully avoided letting it get stuck to anything else. So it's passed on its own now and brown is basically trying to retie them together but i don't think he's going to get away with it now the only ones uh who seem to be opposing sb 100 uh the uh 100 carbon free by 2045 now seem to be uh generally uh, republicans and uh, they're arguing that this is going to spike electricity prices of course they always do that for anything that has anything to do with energy but is there uh some truth here or is that just the usual gop fear-mongering on this stuff? Uh, it is the usual GOP fear-mongering. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a huge GOP talking point that, that California pays some of the highest electricity rates in the country, mm-hmm. and that is absolutely true. But what is also true, and they always leave out, is that California rate payers pay some of the lowest electricity bills in the country. Because mm-hmm. even though rates are high, they've been pushing energy efficiency so much for so long that they use less, and so they and so on net they pay less. Really? So California's and it was always the strategy: we're going to raise the price of power a little bit by by cleaning it up, uh-huh. but we're going to reduce the amount you use by pushing energy efficiency, and it will balance out and will profit in the end. And that's exactly what has happened at every stage of this, and probably is going to happen again at this stage. So yes, I think in the near term. Um, there might be some some increase in power prices, but in the long term, wind and solar are cheaper. <laughs> they're cheaper than they're getting. They're cheaper than coal. They're cheaper than nuclear, and we're getting pretty close to the point where they're cheaper than natural gas. We're getting pretty close to the point where building new wind and solar is cheaper than running existing already built natural gas plants. Really? So this so this idea that by pushing harder on renewables, we're going to raise prices is such a like knee jerk from the 80s 
<laughs> you know, it's like a Reagan era talking point. All around us in the country, power prices are falling where renewables are integrated. It's 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 not even an open question anymore. There, that's why coal is dying, is because renewables and natural gas are cheaper. Like the, 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 it's all in the economics. So about ninety eight percent of that is just the GOP. You know, mm-hmm. auto, automatic nervous response yes. to literally any regulatory proposal. It'll raise prices. That's all they know how to say anymore. But but I think Californians now have been through enough rounds of this that they just don't buy it anymore. Like, no one buys it anymore. I don't think it has any effect in that political context anymore. So uh, is this, I guess the big question is, uh, A, is this possible? And, you know, when when you were uh, talking about the regional grid, one of the things that occurred to me is one of the arguments, I guess, against it was, well, you know, we've got this new goal now, if this is signed for, uh, for 2045. Uh, we've got all of this extra energy that we can't use at peak hours. Can't we uh, put that all into battery storage at this point? Because in some fashion, we're going to have to get rid of uh, natural gas, which is, uh, I want to say, about uh, 24 uh, or, th- or about 30 percent or something like that uh, of our current uh, 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 energy production. Can't we put that extra energy into battery storage, get rid of the natural right. gas, and not deal with uh, other states around the, the region? Well, yeah, this is a, a, another, um, another argument against regionalization, or another group of people who are leery of regionalization are people who would rather, um, the, the term of art for this is intensify the grid rather than expanding it. And mm-hmm. intensifying it just means more storage, more microgrids, more distributed energy. So the idea is instead of reacting to this power surplus by trying to export it somewhere, let's react to it by enabling our grid to absorb more of it. And of course, the response to that is, well, of course we have to do both, right? I mean, of course, of course, California's in the midst of doing both. I mean, California, uh, uh, one of the other bills that passed the legislature that didn't get much attention was a renewal of an, this enormous subsidy program in California for energy storage. So, so um, you can do a lot of that, but I think people underestimate how much, like when you have a California-sized amount of power, <laughs> that's a lot of energy storage. Mm-hmm. That's really a lot. I think people underestimate just how much storage is going to be required. Mm to absorb the amounts of power we're talking about here. It's, it's, it's a quantum leap from, from what we have now. So in the meantime, it would be helpful to be able to export some of that. And, you know, g- climate change doesn't care where emission reductions come from. Mm-hmm. So if California is maybe reducing its own emissions ever so slightly less, but reducing emissions in, in nearby western states a lot more, you know, from California's perspective, that might be a loss, but from the world's perspective, that's a win. Like it's, it's. We yep. just need to, you know, the West in general needs to reduce. Uh, yeah, well, the I, world in I, general. I, I'm, I'm just rooting for us for California at this point. Uh, <laughs> just hanging on with all I can. Uh, and really, last question because I know you got to get out. Uh, if this is signed by the governor, uh, David Roberts, is this actually? achievable uh, i know a lot of people have uh, have their doubts but uh, looking at it looking at just the numbers and everything else we are talking about 30 years a 30 year goal here so yeah. is this achievable in 30 years 
it, it is absolutely 100% achievable in 30 years. To me, the interesting question, the open question is, would California achieve this anyway without this? And that's an open question. Like, it's entirely possible to me that California is already on this trajectory, whether or not it puts it in regulatory fiat or not. But absolutely, it's achievable. It's probably going to happen regardless. That's good news, and that, I guess, means we can double down again in a couple of years under uh, I, Governor I Gavin Newsom. Yeah. I absolutely think that will happen. <laughs> this will not be the last time California boosts its ambitions. And it will not be the last time, David Roberts, that we bother you to join us on the broadcast. You can find his uh, efforts, his work at Vox.com. And, of course, he is a must-follow on the Twitters at DRVox. Just remember Dr. Vox, and you'll find him on uh, Twitter. (laughs) Dave Roberts, always appreciate you joining us, my friend. Thanks a lot, Brad. Have a good one. You too. Okay, a quick break, and we'll come back with some uh, less encouraging news, I think. But I hope you'll stay tuned anyway. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. I got to tell you, Desi Doyen, it is so good, uh, actually, to talk about something that is not only positive and possible and achievable, but that is actually happening. Yes. Uh, assuming Governor Brown signs this thing. But, um, you know, even if he doesn't, it's going to move forward anyway. This renewable energy transition is unstoppable. Uh, I, I, I suspect there is. Well, I, I don't like to make predictions. Right. But uh, Gavin Newsom, if he wins for uh, he's lieutenant governor out here in California, he's running for governor in November. If he wins, uh, I bet he'll sign this thing, even if. Governor Brown doesn't. Uh, that perhaps. Yeah, it would be interesting to see him get put on the record on that. He has been a clean power champion uh, and even more aggressive, I think, than Jerry Brown on that score from what I know about him. So uh, anyway, I, it's a nice break from all of the other nonsense that we have had to cover of late with this administration and their so-called affordable clean energy rule. Which, of course, is a coal rule, which is neither clean nor affordable, it turns out, especially the public health costs of air pollution. 
Uh, but uh, anyway, with all of that uh, encouraging news out of the way, Donald Trump informed Congress today that he is canceling pay raises due in January for most civilian federal employees, citing budget constraints. Budget constraints? What budget constraints? We had no such constraints when Trump and the GOP passed a huge tax cut for rich people and corporations last December. That has resulted in a nearly $1 trillion deficit that did not exist before those huge tax cuts. We didn't have any such budget constraints. When Congress passed a $717 billion defense authorization bill, no constraints at all. But I guess for those forgotten men and women in the uh, working class that Trump pretended he was going to remember, if only you made him president, well, sorry, no raise for you. Trump said he was axing a 2.1 percent across the board raise for most workers, uh, costing uh, $25 billion. He said, quote, we must maintain efforts to put our nation on a fiscally sustainable course. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. That's what he said. And federal agency budgets cannot sustain such increases. Trump cited the, quote, significant cost of employing federal workers as justification for denying the pay increases and called for federal worker pay to be based on performance. This thoughtful announcement, in case you did not notice the timing here, comes as the country heads into the Labor Day holiday weekend. So that's how Donald Trump is celebrating labor this weekend by by cutting their pay, cutting their pay. The Democratic Party, of course, immediately criticized the announcement, citing the tax cuts that Donald Trump signed into law last December. DNC chair Tom Perez said Trump has delivered yet another slap in the face to workers, to American workers. Hard to disagree there. I hope folks keep this in mind come November 6th. Just saying. And what happens November 6th? Uh, going to be, uh, well, <laughs> I was going to say there's going to be an election, but uh, there'll be a disaster on November 6th, <laughs> I'm sure, and we will be covering uh, whatever those disasters may be. That's but true. Americans around the country will be hitting the polling places and trying to uh, speak up in response to this out-of-control, uh, horrific national emergency that we are all facing at this point. Under the existing law, the uh, 2.1% raise would take takes effect automatically. So this raise is already baked in the cake unless the president and Congress act to change it. Congress is currently debating a proposal for a slightly lower pay raise, a 1.9% across-the-board raise instead of this 2.1% that is in law. Um, They're uh, looking at including this in a government funding bill that uh, would require Trump's signature to keep most government functions operating past September. This is the uh, government funding bill that Donald Trump has already threatened to not sign and to shut down the government before November, before the November election, if it doesn't include his uh, funding for his wall that Mexico 
was supposed to pay for. Uh, so anyway, this could um, this could still be stopped depending on how this moves forward, depending on how Congress moves forward. And frankly, it seems to me something that Democrats ought to be willing to draw a line on if they're willing to draw a line on anything, even if it risks a government shutdown before the November election. Frankly, I think shutting the government down to make sure uh, shutting it down to make sure that workers get their promised pay raises would be a good thing for folks to keep in mind, to have in their minds uh, when they go to vote in November. Unions representing the two million member federal workforce urged Congress to pass the one point nine percent pay raise. Um, but for uh, for 2019, the administration is uh, this is what's amazing about this is that uh, so J. Uh, David Cox, senior, the president of the American Federation of Government Employees, represents some 700,000 federal workers, said that federal worker pay and benefits have been cut by more than 200 billion dollars since 2011. And workers are currently earning 5% less than they did at the start of the decade. It's as if some forgotten workers should remain forgotten. Am I right, Mr. President? In July, the Trump administration revised upward its own deficit estimates compared to the estimates in the budget proposal that it had sent to Congress in February and compared to the nonsense that they were uh, tell, selling the public on uh, when they were trying to pass their uh, their uh, huge tax cuts last December. And uh, the worsening deficit reflects the impact of that $1.5 trillion tax cut, as well as increased spending for the military and domestic programs that Congress approved earlier this year. So plenty of money for all of that, just not for the, you know, the workers. Not for the people who actually do the work of keeping society running and stuff. For 2019, the administration is projecting the deficit will once again top $1 trillion and will stay at that level for the next three years. This is the administration's own numbers now that they got their tax cut. The only other period when the federal government ran deficits year after year above $1 trillion, as our deficit now will run, was the four years from 2009 through 2012 when the government uh, use tax cuts and increase spending in order to uh, respond to the 2008 fiscal crisis and the uh, global economic uh, collapse. crisis collapse that yeah. has uh, the worst uh, since the 1930s. Congressman Jerry Connolly of Virginia, who represents many federal workers, blamed what he said was Trump's mismanagement of federal government. Quote, his tax bill exploded the deficit, and now he's trying to blame the budget on the back of balance the budget on the back of federal workers. Well, who could have seen that coming? All right. Uh, one more story here uh, that uh, should transition us nicely to your uh, Green News report. Desi Doyen coming up in a moment. The West Virginia Supreme Court dismissed a last-minute appeal by Don Blankenship, the former coal baron and convicted federal felon, um, for his, uh, he was convicted for his company's part in the Upper Big Branch mine disaster that killed 29 miners back in 2010. But they dismissed a last-minute appeal by Blankenship to add his name to the U.S. Senate 
ballot in West Virginia as a Constitution Party candidate this November. Blankenship, you may recall, uh, finished third back in May in the Republican Senate primary in West Virginia. After, I have to say, a somewhat wacky campaign where he had very interesting campaign ads. You're putting that nicely, but yes. uh, He was uh, blocked from joining the ballot uh, by the West Virginia Supreme Court um, and by the West Virginia Secretary of State, who cited what is known as a sore loser law that prevents defeated majority can, uh, majority party candidates from running under a third party banner. It's meant to pre- prevent exactly what this is. You run for the party's primary, you lose, and you say, OK, well, then I'll run uh, with some other party. I'll they'll have them put me on the ballot. That's what uh, Blankenship was trying to do here. Now, it I wouldn't mind it at all because it would split the vote from the uh, off of the uh, Republican that's running there, probably at least to some extent and make it easier for the Democrat to get through. But this is the law. The law is the law. Not that Don Blankenship has ever given a damn about the law and not that uh, he's ever felt, at least until he went to jail for killing those 29 minors for his part in it. uh, He never cared about the law in West Virginia and the West Virginia law has never harmed him because he used to be the king of West Virginia. Uh, And uh, as as a as a coal baron for years and years, the. West Virginia Supreme Court examined state code to determine whether such laws were constitutional uh, or whether it had come into place retroactively because lawmakers had clarified some of the rules, the election rules in June. But ultimately, the state Supreme Court or what is currently sufficing, sufficing for a state Supreme Court in West Virginia, with two of its five members now resigned and the other three temporarily off the bench while they face impeachment charges that were recently filed against them by the state legislature. But the uh, the court or what's left of it uh, ordered West Virginia's secretary of state to take whatever measures are necessary to ensure that Donald L. Blankenship does not appear on the 2018 general election ballot. Now, for the record, uh, the decision came from three temporary justices who have been named to the Supreme Court by West Virginia's Governor Jim Justice. He ran uh, and won as a Democrat back in 2016. We spoke about this with Mark Joseph Stern uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, It's a fascinating interview. Highly recommend going to bradblock.com and downloading that interview to find out how insane this all is around West Virginia and what's going on with their Supreme Court. Yep. Go download that. It is an amazing uh, conversation. Uh, You can get it at bradblog.com or your favorite podcast site. But in any event, what Justice has done here is he has named currently three temporary justices, apparently, to sit on this court um, while all of this is going on, while all of this is being adjudicated, um, Justice, as I started to say, ran as a Democrat back in 2016, and he won as governor. He became governor and then immediately changed his party affiliation to become a Trump-loving Republican. And so he's now in the process of changing by force, uh, essentially, what had been a three to two Democratic-leaning Supreme Court in West Virginia, turning that into a 5-0 hard-right Republican Supreme Court in the state. 
So I hope that Democrats will will keep this in mind, keep what's going on uh, in West Virginia in mind, what they're doing to the courts there. Uh, something else that uh, uh, Republican Governor Doug Ducey out in um, Arizona did recently to that state Supreme Court. I'm hoping that they will keep all of this in mind when and if they ever get back in power in Congress and the White House and consider packing the U.S. Supreme Court in order to take back the majority that was blatantly stolen from them by Republicans in 2016. Republicans have no compunction about doing such things. They, you know, if they can do it, they will do it. They're doing it in West Virginia. They're doing it in North Carolina. They're doing it in Arizona. Democrats, uh, they're much nicer than that. So, you know, civility. They don't want to upset the waves. And, you know, despite the fact that this court, the U.S. Supreme Court will now, if uh, Brett Kavanaugh is seated and his uh, confirmation hearings are supposed to begin next week, if that happens, uh, they will have stolen the U.S. Supreme Court for a generation. Uh, Blankenship's last-ditch attempt had risked snagging votes from Republican nominee State Attorney General Patrick Morrissey in his race to replace Democratic incumbent U.S. Senator Joe Manchin. I guess we have to put Democratic uh, in the word in quotes there or when we're talking about Joe Manchin. But he is Democrat. He does caucus with the Democrats, even though he does not necessarily always vote with the Democrats. He does caucus with them. Uh, the attorney general's campaign, Pat, uh, Patrick Morrissey's campaign, uh, celebrated the decision by the West Virginia Supreme Court issuing a brief statement saying, quote, no more distractions to hide lying liberal Joe Manchin's record of supporting pro-abortion policies, gun control and Hillary Clinton's campaign against coal miners. I guess we're still talking about Hillary Clinton's campaign against coal miners. Uh, even though, and I have to point out, <laughs> yeah. even though her presidential her presidential campaign policy yeah. was to actually appropriate thirty billion dollars for a just transition for coal country, which is suffering right now as the coal industry inevitably declines. So they're lying about what Cl Hillary Clinton was intending to do on behalf of coal country. Manchin is, of course, a very conservative Democrat, as I say, to put it nicely, but uh, he has been outperforming Morrissey in uh, in both polling and fundraising, despite Donald Trump's double digit win in the heavily Republican state of West Virginia back in 2016. Real Clear Politics cites a current polling average finding uh, Joe Manchin. Uh, he's up by about seven points over the uh, currently very uh, currently he's up over the very Trumpy Attorney General Patrick Morrissey in that fight for the U.S. Senate. This is one of the seats that Republicans thought they had uh, a very good or think still do think they have a very good chance of winning for Republicans flipping from blue to red this November. We'll see. Uh, Manchin is still uh, in the lead and uh, with Blankenship out, however, that uh, should help Republicans. On the other hand, hey, Republicans, um, Republicans who can't stand Patrick Morrissey or Donald Trump. Uh, the November ballot also features a Libertarian Party candidate. That would be Rusty Holland. For those of you uh, Republicans who can't stand either Morrison or Manchin, you can vote for Rusty Holland running as a libertarian. All right. 
Let's take a quick break here, and we will come back with the uh, Green News Report with a little bit more on California and some other, um, I don't want to say less encouraging news because I want people to keep listening. But any event, Green News Report and Desi Doyne is up next. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Five major corporations now control more than 80% of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. That's Desi's song. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. I don't know. I don't know if it's because the uh, holiday Labor Day weekend is coming up, or uh, if Angie Coiro uh, is going to be sitting in for us on our next uh, Bradcast. That I don't. For some reason, I'm in a better than usual mood. I hope so. Maybe it's all that good news uh, from California. You know, it's good to look forward. I think that that's really, really, really helpful. You're just happy that I'm in a good mood and, I... and not being crabby and yelling at you for a change. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, anyway, I will, uh, well, I'll find something to bitch about. Let's get to it. Our latest green news report. This bill calls for getting our state's electricity grid to go 100% renewable energy by the year 2045. California sets the most significant clean energy target in world history while facing dire new predictions for climate impact. Air pollution is making us dumber, plus... I think most of the people in Puerto Rico really appreciate what we've done. Hurricane Maria, now officially the deadliest U.S. disaster in more than 100 years. All of those stories and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Even if I accept that God decides what the weather will be, doesn't he want people to be happy? Absolutely, Jim. And that's why he gave us the world. So we may pillage its forests, ravage its oceans, and suck every drop of its glorious oil. Working on it, this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, on our previous Green News Report, you said that the rainfall from Hurricane Lane in Hawaii was the third highest total ever in the U.S.? Yes. But... You were wrong. <laughs> well, actually, the National Weather Service was wrong. They've updated the rainfall totals from Hurricane Lane, which grazed Hawaii last weekend. Hurricane Lane now ranks as the second largest rainfall event in the United States from a tropical storm or hurricane, coming in after last year's Hurricane Harvey in Houston. So that means that the top two most extreme U.S. rainfall events both occurred in just the last 12 months, completely in line with climate scientists' predictions. Yeah, but you were wrong. The Weather Service was wrong. Oh, sure. Blame the Weather Service. Speaking of natural disasters... Even though it is an estimate, we are actually 
putting an official number uh, to the death toll. Nearly a year after Hurricane Maria devastated Puerto Rico, a new independent report from George Washington University has estimated that the deadly storm killed nearly 3,000 people from both direct and indirect impacts that occurred in the catastrophic aftermath of the storm. That makes Hurricane Maria officially the deadliest U.S. natural disaster in more than a century. Now, the study is an estimate based on statistical analysis. The findings underscore how the collapse of essential systems like electricity and communications and the disastrous response at multiple levels of government contributed to the tragically high death toll. President Donald Trump on Wednesday, however, praised his administration's response. I think we did a fantastic job in Puerto Rico, and I think most of the people in Puerto Rico really appreciate what we've done. To be clear, that was not Donald Trump uh, bragging about the government efforts a year ago when he gave himself an A-plus for what the government was doing. That was Donald Trump this week after this new death toll. In a press conference, Puerto Rico Governor Ricardo Rosseo called on Puerto Ricans to come together. Uh, to mourn, to uh, reflect on the things that were done properly and the things that uh, were mistakes, and to have the firm commitment to identify those mistakes and make sure that moving forward towards the future, uh, those mistakes aren't repeated. And just want to note for the record, there are no plans for the Republican-controlled Congress to investigate the federal response to the disaster. Oh, there would be had Barack Obama been in charge at the time. Meanwhile, air pollution is making us dumber. That's according to a broad new study published this week in the National Academy of Sciences, which found that breathing polluted air caused, quote, a steep reduction in scores on verbal and math tests, particularly in the elderly. And that decline in cognitive ability got worse with the increase in total air pollution exposure. The researchers warned that such cognitive impacts from air pollution impose substantial health and economic costs. And finally, in California, which has already had a record summer of wildfires, heat waves, and high ocean temperatures, the state's new climate change assessment released by officials this week projects that if no action is taken on climate change by 2050, California's snowpack in the mountains could fall by two-thirds, wildfires could double by the end of the century, and rising sea levels could wipe out two-thirds of the beaches in Southern California. And it also warns officials must begin planning now to adapt to those impacts. But some good news, California state lawmakers this week passed landmark legislation to further cut the state's carbon emissions. Now awaiting Democratic Governor Jerry Brown's signature, the new law sets a new target for the state to transition 100% of its electricity to zero carbon energy sources by 2045. This is a very big deal because by itself, California is the fifth largest economy in the world, making this the most impactful clean energy standard yet on the planet. 100% clean energy by 2045 here in California. Yep. I'll take it. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget you can find, follow us, and share us anytime via the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. And yes, next week we are coming up on our 900th episode of the Green News Report. Wow. If you'd like us to keep going, we could use your help. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. California Soul. California Soul. Wow. 
900 editions yes, I of know. the Green News Report. I, up, uh, I try not to think about how many how many years that is, but 900 is, uh, is yeah, kind of blows my mind. Well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, since we do five broadcasts a week, I think uh, we, we never bother to count how many broadcasts <laughs> we, we've done, but I know that uh, I'm pretty sure we're into the thousands at this point. Uh, probably. For whatever that's worth. I don't know if it's worth much, but if you think it's worth something, uh, yes, we would thank you for stopping by bradblog.com slash donate to help Desi and I, uh, Desi and me? Desi and me. To help us both continue with the Green (laughs) News Report and the Bradcast as long as we can. We rely on you. We don't rely on ExxonMobil or Monsanto or the Koch brothers or the Republicans or the Democrats or anyone else. It's not that we don't rely on them. It's that they want nothing to do with us. Hopefully (laughs) you, however, want something to do with us. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate. It would be greatly appreciated. All right. Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, David Roberts of Vox.com and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's broadcast or Green News Report uh, or any other, you can always download all of them for free at bradblog.com. You're welcome. It's free. It's still free. You can also uh, drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. Angie is in for us on the next thrilling Bradcast. We will see you after the holiday weekend. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. (laughs) 